never seen a clock tower before. Black leather, black leather, rock, rock, rock. Black leather, black leather, ta, ta, ta. Black leather, black leather. Oh, look at this, Dave. Hello, darling. Hey, 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 hey. Black leather, black leather, rock, rock, rock. Black leather, black leather, ta, ta, ta. Black leather, black leather, hip, hip, hip. I got that feeling, black leather, rock. Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is your host, James Kent. With me, as always, is Teal. And then we also have Sitting In for the discussion, and we will hear plenty of city noise in the background, is <laughs> Mr. Refrigerator, Billy from Queens. Hello, Jim. Hello, Teal. Great to, uh, great to actually be here with you guys again. Yes. Thank you. And, and your fridge. And my fridge. He's yes. having yeah. some. He's having some technical <laughs> difficulties with his refrigerator right before the holiday. It's a little overworked. What can yeah. I tell you? That's Billy Way. That's the spirit. <laughs> Billy's back. All right. Um, okay. So uh, we've had a holiday, and now we have another holiday coming up. That's when we're taping right before the end of 2020, the best year of our lives. And you'll probably hear this in 2021 to kick off the year, hopefully in a better direction. But, you know, it's the holidays. We've always looked forward to end of the year films. And this year it's mm-hmm. been a little different because uh, unless you happen to be near a theater and won't dare to go to it to see any of these end of the year films, which I think there's a couple playing. Uh, there's a yeah. Tom Hanks movie, News of the World. And then there's a movie that I want to see with Carrie Mulligan called uh, Promising Young Woman, right? Yep. Uh, can't see either one of those. I, I could if I wanted to go an uh, hour and forty minutes. Nomadland, I really want to see. Would, oh wow! And that, they're not even they're not even putting that out into theaters until like January or February sometimes. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, we can't see those, but the streaming services have offered up a few films, and there were a few that dropped during the holidays. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a George Clooney movie called Midnight Sky on Netflix. There was uh, the Wonder Woman eighty four on HBO mm-hmm. and. And then on Disney Plus, Soul, the new Pixar movie, Soul. Yeah. Did you see Soul? I saw Soul. Yes, I, I did. Of I course. have not seen it yet, but I saw it as well. We got youngsters, right, Billy? <laughs> you yes, know, they want to see exactly. the, And, uh, you know. Uh, Partially uh, set in Queens. A lot of the stuff. Oh, that that's true. Is, uh, yes. Is is actually kind of uh, a simulacrum of uh, Queens locations. Kind of interesting. I, I thought it was cool in that you look at that movie and you see how far, like from a technological standpoint, Pixar has come. When oh, you think of just yeah. the, the way it almost looked like you could see the wireframes practically in Toy Story the original 95 and it's so seamless and there's certain things that just look so real uh and i thought that pixar did some interestingly like new angles to animation in this film than they've done in prior films which i thought was cool uh i also think that if i could have seen a big screen that some of the sound work that they did in the film would have been interesting i think so yeah but on the whole you know i was not a fan of inside out uh, mm-hmm. that, that was the one, right? With Amy yeah. Poehler was the little happy-go-lucky spirit inside you. Um, mm-hmm. And this, <laughs> yep, this had some one. similar elements to me of Inside Out, which okay. I also, you know. But I, I mean, I enjoyed it for what it was. But I think that I just haven't been wowed by a Pixar movie in a long time. And this certainly continues that trend of not wowing me. 
Yeah, I, I, I have similar feelings about Pixar. It's just not, yeah, I haven't been wowed in a while. What about you, Billy? I enjoyed it. I thought it was okay. But yeah, I, again, I, I think maybe not seeing it in the theater, it didn't uh, have some of the same impact. But I, I thought it was well done. As I said, I spent most of the time like, oh, yeah, that, that's they're trying to do that part of Roosevelt Avenue. And oh, they're, you know, so that's <laughs> sort of where I was lost uh, in most of the movie. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, so uh, like I said, I would certainly recommend. I mean, if you have Disney Plus, why not watch it? Right? Well, it's sure, available. Yeah. So, and my kids, my kids enjoyed it. So that's you know, that's kind of what matters the most with a movie like that. Yeah. Now the next film is the George Clooney starred and directed sort of, I guess, dystopian sci-fi. I don't know what we want to call it, but it's called Midnight Sky. And I was kind of looking forward to it because I thought I heard some early press or maybe it was that Oscar hype of like, hey, is this Clooney movie going to be a big Oscar consideration or something? So I was kind of excited to watch it. And my wife loves that type of genre. So, you know, it was there, but you saw it first, Dale. So I'm going to turn it over to you. I love this type of genre. I uh, I was excited about the movie based just on what little I knew of the premise. And, you know, George Clooney is director, pretty decent in my opinion. No reason to suspect that, oh, it's George Clooney, it would be terrible or something like that. So I went into this movie kind of looking forward to it. Year-end movie. Uh, oh, man, this thing is terrible. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. God, it's just 10 minutes in. I was like, I don't know if I can do it. <laughs> and, and then it got worse. And this movie just progressively gets worse and worse as it goes. It gets more ridiculous and unbelievable. Characters, motivations are weird. And then it's hard to even know where to begin. The cinematography is lame. It's lame. <laughs> okay. Yes. It's flat and boring. Much like the Arctic landscape. The photography is better there. It's the stuff on the spaceship that's just... Or the set, right? Because that's what it, you know... It looks like a set yeah. the entire time. I did not buy that it was a spaceship at any point. It just looked... It's way over-designed. It's impractical. It's not how you would actually build a spaceship. It's just there to, like, look pretty. And it doesn't look pretty. It looks... In, so, anyhow, the, the design of the spaceship really bugged me for the whole thing. And, in fact... In fact, everything, the story cuts back and forth between these two different time periods in two different locations. But I'm going to give away the movie oh, okay. because I don't think people should see it. <laughs> and so I'm warning people that if you don't like movies where kids don't talk. I freaking hate that. That was like a thing that really bothered me. So this kid shows up. He's all alone in the Arctic and this kid shows up and there's a little thing early on that makes you think maybe she's the daughter of somebody who didn't get on the helicopter. To get, right. Because it was, for some it was reason, a seed planted there in the script, right? There's a seed planted in the script. And for some reason, they never say what the cataclysm is, but it's something uh, we can assume it's like a nuclear war or something. And for some reason, all the people in the Arctic decide that they're going to go back into civilization. Well, they're going to go to underground shelters. Oh, that's right. They're going to underground shelters. So they yeah. don't make that clear until later. Until much, much later. Yeah. The premise is just so terrible. He has to stay behind to warn the spaceship not to come to Earth. But then the spaceship no, no, no. gets He the wants to stay behind to warn it because yes. we don't know why would he want that. You find out from the, from the backstory that he was involved in, I don't know. Yeah, he was involved in discovering the planet that it went to and everything. But here's the thing. If you were sending people to discover new planets 
and see if they were habitable, you wouldn't bring them back. That was the thing that really bothered me about the whole Daniel Moan of the movie was that that these people were on a singular mission going that way. And the decisions that some of these uh, characters make don't make any sense for astronauts. No sense at all. And well, and okay. So then at the end of the movie, it turns out that the little kid that he's with on the survival story, and I like survival stories. So I was kind of into this. Clooney with the kids surviving in the Arctic story. Well, at the end of the movie, it turns out she doesn't exist. Oh, yeah. God. She's actually his daughter who's up there in space. And that's the whole reason why he wanted to stay and warn her. Yeah. Okay. But I don't think, does she know that? I don't think she knows, right? She doesn't know. She doesn't know. Yeah. It's so badly imagined and executed. It's poorly imagined and executed. It's tonally all over the place. The music is unbelievably bad the score is there to just tell you how to react in every moment because it doesn't trust that the movie is actually having any impact and guess what the music is right the movie has no impact so anyhow it's terrible don't see it it's it's the worst movie i've seen this year (laughs) sadly it's not the worst movie i've seen this year but (laughs) and and part of the reason why it's the worst movie is because it thinks it's about something the movie thinks that it's actually saying something and is about something and is meaningful. And it just, none of that is true. It's flawed in the most basic ways. It makes no sense. It's terrible. Don't see it. The end. (laughs) End of rant. Here's the problem is that it borrows from like every single sci-fi film from the last five years from like Arrival to Passengers to Interstellar. Like kind of rolls them all into one. Oh, we need to do a spacewalk and a meteor shower? And then I actually just because I spent all that time watching De Palma, I watched Mission to Mars and it borrows from things from Mission to Mars. And so the things that happen in Mission to Mars and Passengers, which I might have been the only one that watched Passengers. I saw Passengers. It's like it's it's already been done. And And it's not done better here. No. And there's really no need for It's just like watching any other spaceship movie. And I love spaceship movies. Yeah. This was really weak. I mean, everything I found that happened on the spaceship was like 21st century space movie cliches. Yes. Absolutely. Nonstop. Yeah. What was that? Sunshine? Didn't see that one, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That also collect was like a greatest hits collection of space movie uh, cliches. We don't need another space movie <laughs> with some cliche Oh, man. Characters. So, yeah, part of it is <laughs> that when I want to like a movie, I hate it even more if it disappoints me. Through all this, I didn't. we didn't get to watch this in one sitting because we were watching it with our youngest. And so we'd watch it in like chunks. And we'd get back to it. And my wife loves this genre, so she didn't want anything to dissuade from her enjoyment of the movie. Right. And I was like, I really just wasn't into it. I started looking at my phone. And whenever I started and looking on at your my phone, phone, were messages from me about how bad the movie well, was. So I had been trying to keep it secret from her, right? But I finally was like, when, when we were going to sit down and we're going to watch this last 50 minutes. And I was telling her of how you really hated it. And she said, but don't ruin it for people. She's like, don't ruin it on your show because, you know, people... People need movies right now. They need to be able to watch stuff. And I don't want people to say, all right, I'm not going to watch this. Like this was her feeling. By the end of that 50 minutes, when we got to the end of the movie, she was so angry by the movie that she went over to our little board, uh, a chalkboard thing that we have that shows all the things that we want to watch and 
she cr- put a big cross right through the movie, and then she drew a hand with a middle finger on it, <laughs> pointing up to the film. She just said, fine. That was a whole bag of crap, and you can go at it. She was really mad about that movie. I am, too. I am angry about it. I feel cheated. I feel like it, it treated me poorly. It didn't respect. <laughs> it, it had no respect for me. It's ultimately abusive. Don't wow. see it. You, I, I got to say, I only saw 15 minutes of it, and uh, I'm really glad now that I don't have to do it anymore. It's this year's Bird Box, except the Bird Box was better. Bird Box was better, yes. Here's a question. If the pandemic had not happened, would this movie have been in the theaters, or would it have just been in Netflix? It would have been in theaters. So did Netflix pick this one up? Uh, I don't I don't know because there are certain things where Netflix produces the film and then we'll only put it right. in a couple of theaters. And then there's the movies that Netflix bought because yeah, of I the... don't know with this one. Actually, uh-huh. I don't know. Bill, Bill, do you have the answers? <laughs> no, I don't. Really? No, I did. <laughs> and I'm disappointed in Clooney because he's done some interesting things as a director. And this showed none of the creativity he's shown before. Yeah, this was a weird one. Like what? With, because it's such a like it's a derivative of so many movies what possessed him to want to make this movie in the first place i don't know yeah i it's it baffles me yeah especially yeah because it just adds up to nothing by the end of it the the reason why i didn't like uh this movie as as little as you did was because and we didn't talk about this at all and it it was partly because when i saw the film it was just so jaw-droppingly bad in the why did they make this movie (laughs) is we never talked about hillbilly elegy Oh, yeah. Which I think we had both decided we were going to watch it so we could crap on it if it sucked. And then it sucked in the kind of ways where it's just not worth talking about. Mm. But it is far worse. Far, far, far worse than spending time with Clooney up in the Arctic um, (laughs) and an imaginary uh, kid who doesn't talk. Uh, This Hillbilly Elegy movie, oh, my God. I mean, if you've watched uh, One Intervention Show, you've seen this movie a thousand times. (laughs) I'm not kidding. That's the whole thing. My wife. And I've watched Intervention for years, and, right. and if you watch that, and I'm I'm sorry, everybody's watched an episode of that show. You don't need Hillbilly Elegy for anything. It is a, <laughs> this movie was terrible. I don't know what it was trying to say. I mean, that was the whole thing. I mean, you got Ron Howard, and he's usually a guy who's not really making any movies to say anything, right? But this is a this is a real curious. I don't know why he made this movie. <laughs> like, I mean, I don't know what possessed him to say, "Oh yeah, let's make this film." Wasn't the book a big hit? People thought it was kind of making an important kind of uh, cultural statement about Trump world, I think. Right. So you're saying that like liberals kind of looked at it as saying there could people down at the core. They've got those good American values. <laughs> I, I, I think I think that that's a little bit as the, the book kind of uh, presented itself to me. That was the sense I got. The guy who wrote the book, right? So he's a guy who escaped from that world, but he learned all the wrong lessons that people who escape from that world do, whereas he basically exactly. saw the Republican ideal of you can overcome all these obstacles. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But if I can do right. it, everybody else should too. And if you can't, you freaking suck. <laughs> um, but now that's not really what the movie does. Like the movie kind of cuts away from that would have been more interesting that the guy just grows up to be an asshole but um instead like they kind of like turn as sort of the oh gee willikers i'm amongst all these ivy league people and i gotta go back because my mom's overdosed for the thousandth time and you know but i gotta get back for that big interview oh boy meanwhile i'm gonna gonna have uh some flashback with meemaw played by uh chain smoking uh, glenn close she's going for that oscar finally 
What is Hillary Swank up this year? Because she usually steals that Oscar from her, but not this time. <laughs> Wait, is Hillary Swank in this movie? No, no, she no. But be. usually, that whenever Glenn Close is about to get it, it's sort of like her and um, uh, who's the other one that she always seems to steal the Oscar from? Uh, the one that's married to uh, Warren Beatty there. Oh, Annette Benning. Uh, yeah, Annette Benning's always about to get the Oscar, but nope, here comes Hillary Swank. <laughs> um, but yeah, Hill- Hillbilly Elegy is pretty bad, but I wasn't going to rant on that because I have another movie I got to rant on at WW84. Wait, did you see this, Bill? Did you see it? I, I did. I did. Yeah, well, you don't have the HBO, right, Till? I didn't see this movie. Okay. Um, well, you know, I, I look, I, I'm, I'm not, you know me, I'm not a big uh, superhero guy, but I will say that when the first Wonder Woman came out, we all went and saw it at a big theater and I thought it was pretty enjoyable. I mean, I thought some of the superhero plot stuff wasn't the greatest and the, the villain and all that stuff, but it was a fun movie. My daughter liked it a lot. It touched my wife because she got to see like a lead hero yeah. as a woman. I mean, she really loved the message. And I thought that part of the story was really good. Her kind of the fish out of water, mm-hmm. ex- understanding her powers away from an area where everybody was powerful. And, you know, which also there was a kind of like a strong sort of sexuality going on in the mm-hmm. movie. And I liked that, that she was sort of the dominant over, uh, you know, Chris Pines. And right. uh, so that was interesting. So I, there's no reason why I wasn't looking forward to a Wonder Woman set in 1984. I thought that could be kind of funny, right? And, you know, they they'd probably have, I don't know, they've got probably a thousand comic book storylines that they can go for because I don't read the comics, but I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of in the well. Uh, so I was pretty excited. Plus, you know, again, Christmas night, we can watch a movie that's just debuted and mm-hmm. after the pandemic and we didn't get to see it. That's the one thing the pandemic kind of put on the side burners that we haven't had any of those big tentpole film experiences. Right. Yeah. And this would have been one. Exactly. It would have been, and we would have seen it in the summertime, uh, well, you know, May, whatever they, they deem the summer in movieville. When was it supposed <laughs> to come out? I feel originally? like it was May, right, Bill? Okay. Yes, it was. I think some, I mean, definitely over the summer. Now, Bill, would you have probably seen it in the theater with your kids or anything? I, I may have, you know, it's one of these things that I, 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 I might have done it. You know, my kids really were into the the Marvel thing, the DC thing. They've really avoided like the plague. And um, so I, I sat and watched this with uh, my seven-year-old daughter and she, t- she actually tuned out. She just wasn't into it. My little kids didn't want to see it. They walked out. They, they, they didn't. We said, we're going to watch Wonder Woman. Nah, I'm going to play my games I got for Christmas. They're upstairs <laughs> in their rooms. The little one strolled in for the last 45 minutes. And then he just repeatedly was asking questions about what was going on. And we were like, listen, you, you got to come down and watch the whole thing. We're not going to explain it to you. And then he found it was pretty bad. But this film, it angered me because they have like no right. Like there's no way that they should have made a movie this bad. Uh, because I feel it was such a betrayal because there's, I mean, at some point, right? I don't know whether it was the script or early, early uh, viewings of the footage that someone was like, oh, we made a bad movie here. And there's no way that the studio didn't know that. And also, Unforgivable Sin is that when a movie is as, as successful as Wonder Woman is, you don't yeah. skimp on the special effects. And this film, 
It felt like uh, Superman 4 time where they like what? got the worst special effects. <laughs> the special effects were really not that good. And for a while, I actually thought they were paying homage to Superman 3 because it felt <laughs> like a movie that would have been made in the 80s for superhero movies, which was like ridiculous because it was so campy and over the top that I really thought, wow, they go. all they need is the ghost of Richard Pryor here. And they've got but, themselves. But, you know, but the funny thing, I'm so glad you said about the campy thing about it because I got to say, I didn't have anything invested in going in to see this because I, I really wasn't crazy about the first. Wonder Woman movie, but um, I was expecting that at least there'd be some good camp to it. And I actually was looking forward to the camp and I didn't find it funny. I didn't find it that campy. I found it flat. It was so sad. And from the outset, they have this whole little prologue that they do where they decide, I guess everybody couldn't get enough of um, where she came from. So they decided to do this little, I don't know, 10 minute intro back on her home turf when she was a kid that has serves no purpose by the way in the movie other than the fact to bring in some actors from from the first movie and I, I, I think isn't it supposed to have something to do with I don't want to give away but you know you don't cut corners you know when here's the thing is it's that's lame and I'm not gonna get, <laughs> well, but, but it's the same thing that teal said like there's this thing that movies do and this is when they get into trouble when you go to so many lengths to set up something that's going to happen at the end which is where like midnight sky yes. did all of these ridiculous things just to set up a connection between him and right. his daughter that's supposed to be very emotional and moving and you could and give a flying flip for <laughs> that when you do that you set yourself on the wrong course for an entire film. And so nothing in that pro, you could have cut that whole first 10 minutes out and you would not have missed it. And that's a big problem. But here's the thing. It started off, it's sort of like that uh, Malcolm Gladwell thing, Blink, where you just know. You just know. Like, I knew in the first couple of minutes that we were on bad, shaky ground because they were having some big contest, which was stupid, at the beginning of this movie where, like, you know, I don't know, they're chasing some kind of, like, trophy. And this is Diana's first chance to compete for it. And she's only like, I don't know, eight or something. Right. Yes. And you see these crowd scenes and you know how I hate these things that they had. Like, and this is one of those big knocks I had on black Panther. Whenever you show a huge stadium in any of these DC Marvel movies and there's people cheering, you can just see these bad actors yeah. that are just, they're always raising their hands and they're going four fifths pumps. Yay. 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 And then they like splice them in, in a digital way and nothing looks genuine or real and it stands out to me so hard that it's so distracting <laughs> and it looks so fake and I'm like who doesn't I mean I just get angry I get angry and immediately takes me right out of the movie when I see these bad crowd scenes and I'm going to tell you something all right in the last couple of weeks since we last taped I rewatched we rewatched with our oldest uh, this is his first viewing and he was just blown away by the movie I mean he couldn't believe what an insane film this was and I tell you I haven't watched it in a few years and I just grow to appreciate it more and more and more is Martin Scorsese's Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, you let him watch that. Oh, yeah, huh? I, I, well, you know, you forget. <laughs> you watch it. And then and my wife and I were like, I guess he's in it now. He's watching it. And he he just he'd never seen anything like that movie. And he was like, I mean, it was those, you know how when we saw certain films at an age and we it changed us? Yeah. That yeah. movie changed him. <laughs> he said. In what way? Well, he said yeah, to me exactly. at some point, he goes, DiCaprio. He's like, what a performance. He's like, this is, am he's amazing in this movie. And it's the first time I heard him talking about movies that way. Right. right. So here's what a great director does. And there are the scenes when DiCaprio has those amped up, pumped up speeches in front of his entire 
team of brokers. Yeah. Watch those scenes and not just the energy DiCaprio brings, but you watch a whole bunch of people that are like, you know, I guess are extras and other you know people, but yeah. there's like a hundred people in there. And the, the responses that you can see around that room are genuine. You don't feel like it's the typical. Right. That's a good call. Actor that is just sitting there going, yeah. And they're holding their hands up and it looks very fake. These like these crowd scenes, which are so integral to the movie. Right. If they're not done right, they feel false. You feel the energy in that entire room. And I'm like, see, that's the way a crowd scene should be. And Wonder Woman fakes it, fakes everything, it sounds like. Oh, my God. Bill, Bill add some words in there, how yeah, bad yeah. this movie let's, is. Let's hear from You know, ultimately, I mean, it, it, the, the worst thing you can say about it is just um, – uh, it, it, at a certain point, I was there and I was watching it and it was just noise in the background. No, that's the best thing you can say about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you that, said the worst. That, that, that doesn't the best sound thing. so bad. The best thing is, is that it didn't hurt you when you shut it <laughs> off. I mean, I mean it just, it's just, uh, you know, I was, I, I really, I, I just couldn't get into it. The, and the whole thing about how Chris Pine shows up again is, you know, based from, from the last movie was just weird. Actually, that's the thing that was kind of, so here's the kind thing. Of. Thing there's, there's, no, there's no, a stone. But, there's a stone yeah, that you're able to like There's a freaking stone. There's a rock. There's a stone. These movies have nothing but these fucking stones. <laughs> I'm so tired. Is that what people have been reading about in these comic books all these years? It's always about a freaking stone. You know what? When they did that with Superman and as a kid, I'm like, okay, that makes sense with the kryptonite. I didn't realize that was the whole goddamn ethos of all these comic book movies was a freaking rock or stone or a ring. <laughs> but, I mean, but that's that's the the thing that I thought was that that uh, it, it was it was like something something out of like a Disney movie from like 20 years ago for kids. Like it's like somebody gets a rock and they're able to have a wish. And it, it that'd had been it. more fun if they did the whole freaky Friday <laughs> with her and Christina Wig, where suddenly Christina Wig was Wonder Woman or something that might've been better. Yes. But that's actually, <laughs> it, it, it plays kind of like that. And it, it just ultimately is like, you know, silly, but in a way that takes itself way too seriously. Oh, okay. So that's the failure of the camp, right? If the if the camp had succeeded. Oh, I wish it was campy. Like if Kristen, they hire Kristen Wiig, but they don't let her be campy. And and that's the thing. It kind of falls between everything. Like it's not satisfying as camp. You know, it's it's definitely, you know, in terms of like any messages trying to make about, I, I guess, uh, America in the 80s or, you know, I mean, it's maybe trying to do something like that on some sort of superficial <laughs> level. And it just, it doesn't work. It just, it's, and so, so everything about it is just, you know, death. You, you mentioned this, but you didn't really get into the to the gut of it is that, first of all, Chris Pine. Yeah, it was a OK romance in the first movie. But did anybody really care if he ever came back? No, it's better if he doesn't. Yeah. So here it is. It's 70 plus years later from World War One. Yeah. And right. Diana Prince, as I recall, was kind of a sexual uh, being. Right. You know, in the first movie, she was very, very uh, exploring her sexuality and she had a lot of power. And woman. So now that they're telling us is that for the last six years, she's done nothing with anyone because she can't get over her love, Chris Pine, which is insane. It doesn't make yeah. any sense. 
So who? So like when it comes back, all you're stuck with is this is tragic and sad that she like wants Chris Pine <laughs> back after 60, 70 years. That, that, who, what? No. I mean, she, vampires get over it and they find new loves all the time. How does right. he come back? He just shows up at a party. Didn't know. There's a freaking stone and- Oh, there's a stone. Okay, never mind. There's a stone. Never mind. <laughs> there's a stone that grants wishes, right? And what? And so it shows up at the Smithsonian where Diana Prince works and then Christine Wiggs, the new hotshot gemologist or whatever, who's a total nerd, I guess, <laughs> even though she doesn't seem that nerdy. And But except for Diana Prince, which, you know, Wonder Woman, she kind of treats Kristen Wiig kind of like like a jerk at the beginning until she finds out there's like this rock that like, whoa, well, wait a minute. This has bigger implications, but I don't want to tell you about it. And they don't really believe in the stories that, you know, if you wish for something, it could come true. So accidentally, Kristen Wiig wishes that she could be like cool and hip and powerful like Diana Prince, which, of course, turns her into having powers like Wonder Woman. Oh. And Wonder Woman kind of wishes that she could have Chris Pine back. But then they oh. borrow something from Quantum Leap where some guy who doesn't <laughs> right. actually look like Chris Pine, she somehow recognizes that it is Chris Pine. And if you look in the mirror, it's Chris Pine or something. I don't know. And, and so he just becomes him. It's sort of like almost, you know, how in the beginning of uh, the hunt for the Red October when like they're speaking Russian and then right, it just switches right. over. Switch over. So it's kind of like he shows up and then all of a sudden it's like she looks at him and the camera circles around, uh, does a 360, the Palma kind of. And then all of a sudden you have uh, it's Chris Pine. OK, but he's in somebody else's body. Yes, I guess. We don't really know. And look, all I know is anything will hurt him. <laughs> I couldn't be bothered. I'm going to tell you something, right? The movie, for some reason, is two and a half hours. And I checked my watch. Until about an hour and 20 minutes, there really isn't anything happening. I don't think she even is as Wonder Woman until about 100 uh, an hour and 20 minutes in. And then there's what? like a sequence. And yeah, you could tell in some spots. No, she is in the beginning, in the mall. Oh, yeah, right. So they do this whole thing that they did in the Superman movies where they needed to give you some Superman action. So they have this ridiculous little heist in a mall. Yeah, very Stranger Things kind of. Yeah, it gives her a chance to be Wonder Woman and, you know, going around doing do-gooder things. And establish the 80s. It's so funny, right? After they established the 80s with this mall sequence, which everybody's dressed up super 80s, basically they forget that it was in the 80s and nothing looks like it's in the 80s anymore. And there's no 80s music, I heard. No. No, no. There was, there was Frankie Goes to Hollywood. They played a little bit. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, they did. So there you go. That's It's, that's, it's uh, a fail. This movie is such a failure. The set pieces are terrible. It's a really bad story. <laughs> uh, it's literally, you know what? I have to weigh. If I put, the, put them on the scale, I'm not sure whether the f- first Suicide Squad movie they made or this is the worst superhero movie I ever watched. Oh, wow. Maybe this is a bit worse than Suicide Squad. That's hard to do, but wow, yeah. Um, I guess you didn't see the uh, Waterman movie. Oh, Aquaman? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what? There's Okay, maybe that's worse because I could only get through 15 minutes of that, and it was so Me terrible too. that I'm like, I'm out of here. Yeah, I couldn't. I, I, I may have made 20 minutes, but oh. it was so bad. Yeah. Wonder Woman had broken the mold of these bad DC right. movies. Well, this has put it the mold right back in. <laughs> it's really bad. So, And yet at the same time, I'm looking forward to the Robert Pattinson Batman. 
I don't know if I'm the word looking forward is, but I always enjoy anything he does. There was a tidbit recently where they got uh, Pattinson quoted as saying is that I was on the set for Tenet for months at a time. He says, I don't freaking know most of the time what was happening, <laughs> but I just went with it. <laughs> I love it. All right. But anyways, that was, that was the uh, introduction to our show. Uh, the, the rants. Hopefully, we ranted everything out. <laughs> Several episodes ago, we got a comment on our website from uh, a listener, and his name is Andrew Perry. And he said, Hey, I watched these two movies The Servant and Mr. Klein by this director, Joseph Losey. Could you maybe talk about those films? And I said, well, hey, you know what? Anybody, a listener, you know, recommends a couple of films and I've never seen them. Sure. Let's take a challenge. And the funny thing is, Joseph Losey, I was like, I don't even really know who this director is. I knew his name. I was very familiar with his name for some reason. And I and I knew about The Servant. I had heard about it. That's why I was like, oh, I know The Servant. Uh, somebody years ago had told me this is one of their favorite movies and I should watch right. it. So I was like, well, that's great. This is a movie I should see, right? <laughs> I think it was shown in my language of film class. I was in language of film. It was Richard, um, I forget what the name of the professor was. Yes, The guy yes. who ran, yeah, And, yeah, yeah, and yeah, I think yeah. you guys were, because you were in the same year, so I think you guys were in we the same film class. We would have been in the same language of film yeah, class. Yeah, yeah, and he showed the servant. That's right. I literally think I missed that day. And I had previously had seen only one Joseph Losey film, and I didn't realize it was him that made it, which was The, green, the Boy with the Green Hair, which I watched on Criterion uh, like maybe a year ago. Oddly, the only one I had seen before was Modesty Blaze. And I really thought that the boy with, with the green hair was pretty amazing. Yeah. Uh, especially, you know, looking at it now, I mean, it was 1947. It was this Technicolor film, uh, Dean Stockwell's first, like, early movie. Oh, he was just a kid. Okay. He played Fine. the boy with the green hair. And I thought it had a very interesting message about what was happening in the country at the time where people were very afraid of like, you know, communists. Right. And right. he made this film about tolerance and it kind of was a precursor to what this guy was going to experience in Hollywood himself throughout. Yeah, it, wasn't, it wasn't met very well. No. <laughs> his his well, message of tolerance was uh, not, not met with tolerance. Didn't like Howard Hughes hold on to the movie and recut it or something? If it was made by Hughes, Hughes did have his contract and held on to his contract and wouldn't let him make any more movies because right. around the time, uh, Losey was under suspicion by the House of Un-American Activities Committee. Yes. And he hadn't yet been blacklisted, but he had a lot of associations with leftists and communists. And he eventually joined the Communist Party because I think he felt like, well, uh, they're already after me anyway, so <laughs> screw them. And- he was friends in 1946 to 47. He worked a lot when Bertolt Brecht was in exile in Hollywood. Right. Oh, interesting. Okay. And he co-directed uh, the play with him. Galileo. Life of Galileo uh, with Charles Lawton at the time. And okay. eventually in the 70s, he directed a film version. And what's interesting about that is it was part of that American film theater series that I had mentioned. Oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. The Man in the Glass Booth. So it was another film that was part of that. Right. Okay. He was kicking around with all these people. So the uh, the HUAC wanted to talk to him. Right. And 
he went to Europe to make a film called Stranger on the Prowl. Not to be confused with The Prowler. It was a different movie. Right, okay. Uh, that's when he was blacklisted. So he returned to the U.S. in October of 1952 and was instantly unemployable. Couldn't get a job. Nope. Right, okay. He was supposed to uh, direct uh, the play. He was supposed to direct The Crucible. And they had to back down because there was too much concern and fear that the play would never open if he directed it. Okay. So he decided to go back to Europe out of necessity, and he eventually settled in England and got work there. He's basically, he didn't have a lot of hard feelings on the whole matter years later because he felt that if he had stayed in Hollywood, it would have killed him. Right. And he might have had, you know, some fancy cars and a nice pool, but he'd be dead. Um, and he right. said, so sometimes, you know, you have to look at the good with all the bad stuff that happens to you. So that thought that was an interesting perspective. Yeah, that is. And Martin Scorsese played a version of Losi. His name was Joe Lesser in the film Guilty by Suspicion. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. He plays yeah. basically, he plays him. So I thought that was fascinating. That's, and it has one of those great, like Scorsese, it's like, how can you believe him? And he's like, because I'm a communist. Everyone I know is a communist. I'm a communist. That's it. I'm going to go. <laughs> and that's kind of how Losi was was like he's like well yeah. you know um plus he was also and you know i have to do some digging to get this but he was very interesting because it affects all of his work a little subtext yes. he was a closeted homosexual um he had wives that i didn't know he lived a bearded life and he had an affair with dirk bogard and they were lovers uh, during the servant and dirk bogard was closeted as well however dirk refused to beard um, which hurt his career in Hollywood because they wanted to uh, get him into Hollywood and beard him up. And he said, no, I'm not doing that. Wow. So yeah. it kind of impacted the roles he could get. But I think when you understand that, the servant, an accident is very interesting. And even mm -hmm. even in the early 80s, one of his last films that I was mentioning uh, off, off of this uh, podcast, the La Trout. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That has a very strange uh, storyline that also talks about a, a couple that's in a marriage kind of bearding because the husband is gay. Oh, okay. And so Losi seems to understand a lot about that world. Yeah. And he brings those into his films, which I thought was really uh, fascinating. But one of the first films, not the first one I watched, but one of the first ones uh, that you dug up, Teal, and you talked yeah. about uh, was a 1951 noir, The Prowler, which yes. was written by Dalton Trumbo, but credited yes. as Hugo Butler because already the blacklist was happening. Yep. And that one is your classic noir movie uh, starring Van Heflin and Evelyn Keyes. I think it's a great screenplay, The Prowler. The dialogue's really interesting. And just the Van Heflin character is so strange. And uh, creepy. Yeah, and, right. Uh, super creepy. But there's layers to this character that come out over the course of the movie until you realize how completely crazy he is and kind of evil. <laughs> He likes to make films that seemingly are about one thing or even the title suggests something and it starts out maybe one way and it goes completely in a different direction than I was expecting by the end of it. And that's kind of like how The Prowler is because The Prowler isn't necessarily about a prowler. It starts out about a prowler, but it becomes something more very quickly. Right. He, he basically kills her husband. Yes. 
and then takes over her life. And then, I mean, he's an interesting character because he really sort of imagines himself as being more than he is. He's so ambitious, personally ambitious, but to sort of make that leap, he has to insinuate himself into somebody else's life to become who he thinks he is. But, and then he, he doesn't want to lose it. So yeah, he tries to force her to have an abortion and she won't. So they have to go hide out to have the baby. He's a police officer and him and his partner respond to a prowler call at her house. And her husband works as a radio announcer at night and he quickly falls for her and he finds ways to go back and visit her and basically finds out that her husband, she's kind of a kept woman by this radio announcer guy and who we never see until like maybe the the moment where he gets killed. But Eventually, this Van Heflin, he becomes obsessed with this woman, Evelyn Keys, and and he kind of fall in love and obviously have a relationship and she gets pregnant, though we don't find that out right away. He wants her to run away with him. She doesn't want to. And so he feels like the husband standing in the way. And so he goes out and he's like rustling around the bushes one night. The husband <laughs> thinks it's a prowler. He goes out and Van Heflin shoots him. And then he walks over and then he sees that the guy had a gun and he takes the gun and he shoots his arm and says that, you know, it was one of those, oh, he shot first. And so there's an inquest and she doesn't want to admit that she knew Van Heflin at all. So she lies about having really ever seen him, though Van Heflin's partner's kind of like, well, that's weird. We visited her house once for a prowler call. Um, so then he, so they get married like right away, like suddenly a month later. And it's so weird is that her uh, brother-in-law, which is the brother of the guy that Van Heflin shot and killed, right. he seems right. to be buddy buddies with Van Heflin and offers up all this <laughs> yes. information like that she couldn't, that he couldn't have a baby, this husband. So, and she always wanted to have kids. So that's a plot point that now becomes she's four months pregnant. But the husband's dead and the brother knows that he couldn't have a baby. So everyone's going to find out that she was pregnant and that they had lied about it and that they could be in big trouble. So that's why uh, yes. Van Heflin wants to have an abortion. And when she won't have that, they go off to have the kid. But it's so ridiculous because I'm sure they could have come up with a way saying it was the husband's kid and that they, you know, he could have a kid after all. There's a million ways they could have got around it. Yeah, but part of it is that he, his character just wants control over her. Exactly. He's actually keeping her much like the late husband did. Yeah. Right. Very edgy stuff for 1951. Well, it is. Yeah, that's what kind of blew me away about this movie is how crazy edgy it is. Well, I think you have to put the blacklist and what was happening in the country into perspective is that yeah. Losey's making a commentary in that even if you could explain something away, people are not in a trusting way. They're very suspicious. And there was a lot about that going on um, with this whole murder of the husband. Right. And the wife is like, I'm not sure I can trust this guy anymore. And it's very, it's very interesting stuff, I would say, in this movie. It's more than the sum of its parts. It's more than just a, a interesting little noir film. I think it adds up to being more than interesting, actually. So I don't know. Did you see any of the other 50s movies he made, uh, Bill? Uh, what did I see? I saw Time Without Pity, the one that he oh. made in England, and that's on Criterion. Okay. And I actually really enjoyed that very much. It's written by the same guy who wrote Boy with the uh, Green Hair. Yes. Okay. He, um, he also was blacklisted. He wrote like El He went on to write El, El Cid, Cid and a couple of other things. I think Barsman was his name. It's, it's a very good English 
noir thriller. You know how a couple of weeks ago when you guys were talking about Hammer films and how you basically had everybody in the the English, uh, in the British film industry would be in these like one film. So, of course, Peter Cushing's in it. Leo McKern, uh, Michael Redgrave is the lead. Lois Maxwell uh, is in it. Joan Plowright. Um, it's got a really, really great cast. Basically, the story is this. It's a um, novelist who is a serious alcoholic. He's been in uh, a sanitarium and he's not been able to have any outside contact with the world. And he comes out to find that his son, who he's been sort of estranged with, is going to be executed for a murder. And that uh, his son has been taken in by a very wealthy uh, family of uh, auto manufacturers. Leo McKern is the head of the family. And it it very much is kind of a noir. Uh, So he is determined. Peter Cushing plays uh, the lawyer who's been hired by the family to represent his son. And, you know, obviously things are more complicated than they seem that the son may not be guilty. But Michael Redgrave tries to go out and and find evidence of his son's innocence. And it's one of these things, if you know Michael Redgrave, you know, he usually, I, I know him best from supporting parts, and he has this sort of aristocratic, kind of wavering, stammering voice where he's always like, <laughs> oh, 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 oh. And, and it actually, like, works really, really, really well here. Like, the, this kind of sense that you can see of, like, his guilt about the fact that he's had a, a very poor relationship with his son and his panic as it gets closer to his son's execution and, you know, his trying to to stay off the booze as things get, you know, increasingly grim. And um, it also, I got to say, Leo McKern gives an insanely villainous, over-the-top, like, performance that's hilarious, that's, like, great fun. It's really, it's a quite a good film. And also the thing about it that that's very interesting is that the set design is all very modernist. And you were speaking about Losey a couple of weeks ago, Teal, you were talking about just like his sense of mise-en-scene and uh, like his ability yes. to, to frame and, um, you know, even the way that he sets up rooms and he, that's really very much on display here. Yeah. His understanding and uh, uh, this, every one of his films I've seen his understanding of physical space and how the actors relate to each other within that space. Mm-hmm. And it, he's telling story with his shots. There's story information coming across just in his framing. And he's telling us about the characters in a way that he's not just filming their performance. He's adding to it in how he photographs them and how he has them occupy the space. Yeah, the blocking is just amazing to me. Now, Losey made... The Damned was the original title for Hammer Films in 1963, Other, sometimes titled uh, These Are the Damned. And it's, you know, the classic Hammer film, but in the hands of Losey, he turns it into something completely different. And it starts off and it feels like it's like some kind of like, you know, youth biker gang movie, <laughs> which is pretty <laughs> hilarious, uh, with Oliver Reed in one of his very first roles. The guy's only like 22. He hadn't even had his oh, face wow. sliced he up in a bar fight. Exactly. He doesn't have the pint glass uh, facial. His name is King. <laughs> and, and now you know what? I don't think uh, Oliver Reed was even acting. I think that was the guy, <laughs> like a real badass, you know, uh, punk who has some very weird sort of incestuous relationship 
relationship with his uh, sister, uh, Shirley Ann Field, who plays his sister Joan in the film. It starts with this awesome, it almost feels like very uh, like widescreen Fellini at the beginning where they have this funky rock music called uh, Black Leather Rock. And it's going Yeah, Teddy Boys with their own, like a gang with their own theme song. Yeah, Black Leather, Black <laughs> Leather, Rock, Rock, Rock. And it's like, it's like really interesting. And the girl, uh, his sister is being used as a lure to like rip off rich tourists. And so there's this guy, McDonald Carey, played by Simon Wells, and he's this American tourist. He's walking along and Joan catches his eye and then she kind of leads him down like a corner where the Teddy Boys beat him up. And then it continues with these Teddy Boys kind of beating him up. And it's funny because the Teddy Boys are very much like an early version of Alex and the Droogs. Yes. Oh, interesting. And so that already is fascinating. But then there's this other side plot going on with uh, this actor, Alexander Knox, who works for the government, uh, named Bernard, and his wife, Vivica Lanfors, who is a um, sculptor. Is a sculptor. And she's uh, what, played by Freya Nelson who is a Scandinavian character actress who would show up later in life. I was always obsessed with this actress. She was the professor in the movie The Sure Thing back in like the early oh, 80s. Wow. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh my God, I know this actress here. And she, this was just a younger version of her. And she plays the sculptress. And she's also married to the government guy. And then so there's this whole idea about secrets being kept. And then the film, I'm going to skip forward. It keeps going with this Teddy Boy's uh, obsession of this guy's sister being involved with the American tourist. And it all kind of culminates with the discovery of the three main characters, Oliver Reed and his sister and this American tourist, all getting like rescued at sea in these like little underground caves by the society of kids who seem to be kept as a secret government experiment. Which looks like Dr. No's, like, you know, fortress inside, kind of. (laughs) So cool. (laughs) All of these kids, and it's like this weird dystopian, like, teaching education that the kids are getting, and they're all separated, and the only time they ever see anybody are these men in, like, suits. Like, they're, like, in these, like, protective gear outfits who come in to, to, like, maybe experiment on the kids at night or something. So (laughs) the kids are petrified, and they view these three adults that have rescued them, who've been acting like children themselves— they view them as their saviors. Right. And they want them. But the longer that these uh, three stay with the kids, they start to get sick. And so the government is like figuring this out and they want to get these people. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I don't want to give it everything away, but it gets kind of a really crazy ending and a really interesting message about uh, nuclear proliferation. And government secrets and, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's a whole like subtext with the woman who's sculpting these sculpts of people that look like they've been burnt in ash from a nuclear annihilation. And so it has a political angle. Very much so. I thought this movie blew me away in a way. (laughs) He constantly has some sort of political or societal or sociological examination going on in his films. About government power a lot or about power yes, relationships. Yes, frequently about and government And class power. relationships. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, so he takes a B-grade hammer material and he turns it into something completely different. That is, okay, I got to see this. That just sounds so 
too weird to be believed kind of the tone just the shift in tone is very interesting you know because i started watching it and i i texted jimmy and i was like yeah i started watching this about 15 minutes in and i at that time i was kind of non-committal on it and it right. does tie up very the ending is i think very strong i'll just leave it at there's that. also some visual set pieces like there's that chase with the teddy boys in the graveyard that must be like a day for night thing but it's so gorgeous right there's a lot of films where it kind of starts one way and you're not sure where it's going. And by the end, it's completely different. And that's kind of leads you into which one of his masterpieces, The Servant. Yeah, I was just going to say in The Servant, at the end of the second act, I was like, where do you go from here? <laughs> yes. Like how, I mean, how do you possibly top this? Like, I'm like, there's, there's a half an hour left in the movie. What, what the, what are they going to do? And then of course they go somewhere really interesting uh, yes. that I was not expecting. This is the first one I dived into was the servant, right? Cause I figured, well, I'm going to watch the servant and I'll watch this Mr. Klein. And it, it was after watching the servant, I was like, okay, I need to see more of this guy, <laughs> Joseph Losey's movies because it gets very sinister. <laughs> yes. Yes. The filmmaking, I got to say, the level of cinematic craft in this movie is so high. Like, it, it's operating on such a high level of, of cinema. And uh, yes, I, Doug, Doug Slocum deserves some of the credit there. But Losey managed, I mean, this is almost a bottle movie. So much of it takes place in this house. True. And the way he works the physical space of that house, like every single shot is interesting and meaningful in this movie. And he does it all in a very limited space, but somehow keeps finding ways to arrange it that, yeah, every shot is interesting. It's amazing to me. Yeah. So there's certain things that I noticed in this film. But then, of course, when I start to watch all of Losey, there are several things that he does. And these are his little trademarks. Yeah. And of course, even though I saw The Damned last, he was doing these things even in The Damned. Here's some things that he does, and I want to mention it now so that as we talk about the other films, you can maybe – you'll find examples. He likes to do long shots. He's not yes. interested necessarily in the close-up, even though The Servant is a one example where there are a lot of close-ups. Yeah. But he loves to view characters from somewhat of a distance. Mm -hmm. um, and this leads into that mise-en-scene, that in the frame. So he's really looking at where that character is from a slightly different vantage point than most films today do. Exactly. He also likes to do a lot of shots that show action out a window or framed yes. within yes. something that he likes to set his films to make people feel like these events are really happening. Because when you shoot from a distance out a window and you see action, yeah. it looks very much like how you or I, when we view action out a window, it has that, oh, this is something that's happening out at real life and I'm observing it. Mm -hmm. And Losi's camera is an observer. Of what yes. his people are doing. And so quite often you'll see these angles that start out looking out a window and sometimes they pan back and you'll see the actor looking and then the action inside will take place. I think that's fascinating. The pans you were just talking about, he'll often, it, there'll be like a perfectly composed shot 
and then an actor will move and it'll be a long shot, very nicely composed. And you're like, wow, what a great shot. And then an actor will move and he'll follow them into another amazing shot. Well, that's right. He's like double composition. Like, so the long take, he doesn't do like, oh, I'm going to do like in my movie, I'm going to have a signature five minute scene, which is all one long take. But he'll do these long takes where he actually is allowing, I think this comes from his theater background. Yeah. He's allowing the actors to surprise act their way through the scene. Right. And so you can tell that it's blocked out. Like, okay, the camera is going to start here. Actors are going to go here and we're going to move over. But he leaves enough room in the frame so that you don't have to cut. And he's going to know that the scene is going to end with the character going back. And a couple of times he doesn't, uh, not necessarily in this film, the servant, uh, though there may be examples of it, but I really noticed it in Mr. Klein, where mm-hmm. he is a, a director. He pans left a lot. Yes, he does. He does yes. it. It's not about a right. He, he'll start yeah. when panning left, but he does this amazing move where he'll pan left. And then as the action happens, he'll pivot his camera 90 degrees. And what he does is he's got like a new setup, but he's done this in camera. And now you'll see that actor then suddenly maybe go out a door, but you've set it up very interestingly because when he makes this move, your, your whole orientation about what the scene and what things look like is completely different. Yes. Right. But there's no cutting. And I, I think it's so great as he's doing this camera work. Yeah. He moves to a new setup without cutting. And he'll even like, even as he'll move maybe closer. Like, so within a scene, and there's a scene of Mr. Klein where Alain Delon is talking to Jean Moreau and they have a conversation and she is on the right and he's on the left. And then the camera, it follows them left as they move the action. The camera moves a little bit more. It may dolly in to get a little bit of a closer, moves out. And then she's going to head out. The camera follows right. She walks past where the camera is and goes out the door. You don't see her go out the door with the camera, but the camera catches that action in a mirror. Yes. And so he uses the mirror to show that shot without having to cut. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like, you know, it's like the Palmaville going on. It's such an incredible command of the visuals. And and by the way, he does that, that mirror you were talking about that is in the servant is, uh, you know, used a, a great deal. Yeah, there's the circular mirror, but then there's also like the mirror in the bar. That bar scene where he he re- meets up with James Yeah, Fox. when they meet up again, exactly. Yep. And that starts off in a mirror and then it's like these reverse shots and then it goes back into the mirror. It's really interesting. And and I the, the performances are, are phenomenal. The very first time I did see this, the professor, he, he spoke about it as a vampire movie. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. I and mean, obviously there's also a whole social matter going on about British society and this yes. right. this cad, right? This rich cad, James Fox, who has no responsibilities. He's, he's, <laughs> you know, he's building a couple of cities in the jungle, apparently. Yeah, he's <laughs> building some cities in Brazil. But <laughs> yeah, he has no responsibilities and he drinks a lot. The ending of the movie leads me to a question. And I don't know. I mean, because the ending, it really was kind of messed my mind up a little bit. But the scene when James Fox's, I guess, ex-fiance comes back. And when you discover, like, through all the women that are there, there are all these prostitutes that Dirk Bogard. We kind of been introduced to various ones at bars and things like that. The question is, was Sarah Miles ever Dirk Bogard's, like, girlfriend or was she another prostitute? 
Oh, because she's there too. And it made me question what his relationship to her was all along. I think that's the same difference. I don't even know what to make of this movie. It's so insane. Because he, he does pimp her out. Yeah. But, but then he claims that he wasn't and he was the victim of her uh, manipulations. Yeah. <laughs> My point is that it's a big gray area. And there's a lot of ambiguity there in terms of his motives. I was thinking he pimps her out, right? Yeah. But then he claims not to, but he he's manipulative. There's, and But I think this lends itself to what uh, Jim's talking about with the ending, is that there's some ambiguity about, and I think part of it is that this guy is like a force of nature in a way, and it, it's not necessarily as calculated as it might be. We could have spent the whole episode on just this film, and if we had just seen this and Mr. Klein, that might have happened, but instead, we, of course, we do we do the full justice, and we go way <laughs> deep and see this guy's films, and so now we don't even have room to completely just talk about The Servant, but maybe... The Servant is one of those movies where I could sit down and go through it shot by shot. And find something interesting and meaningful in every single shot. I can't believe this movie isn't talked about more. How is this guy not considered one of the great? I know he had a lot of misses, I guess, and I haven't seen those. But like this, (laughs) but like, I mean, what I've discovered through this is that we have a director here. (laughs) He's no, he's a great director. No question. An incredible director. And The Servant is I mean, it's a great movie. It should be on the list of like 100 best movies. I don't know if it is. We're not immune to not being able to see every movie. And Right, right, right. We did the show to hope to interact with people that we don't know and get listeners that might suggest things. And that's where this Andrew Perry guy did. Thank you. Yes. Oh, man. (laughs) I mean, what a... What a treat to watch these movies that are just so confidently made. And I think that, you know, you were talking about the blink thing with uh, Wonder Woman 84, how you just know right at the beginning. And I feel like that with with these lossy films, yep. lossy films, is that like I know in the first two or three minutes that I am in good hands and that I can trust this director to take me somewhere. It's really after The Servant, though, you get just the sense of, like, I, I was going to say, it's so masterfully done. And yes. I think the films afterwards, you really see that he he really just has um, his, he's just way more assured, I would say. After that, he knew where he was going to go with certain films. And, you know, the accident wasn't, my favorite Losi, but it continuing on that theme of the servant. There was a lot of stuff going on in that movie. It's a complex movie. I I agree. I, I was not the biggest fan of it, but I didn't dislike it. I found it very interesting. Again, interesting in terms of the the genealogy of how it appeared. You know, the it's based upon a novel written by um, the son of Oswald Mosley, the um, head of uh, you know Union of British Fascists. Uh, wrote the novel that it's based on. And, you know, but he he had broken with his father, but he grew up in this kind of very kind of right-wing aristocratic kind of world. And and he he had broken with his father over his father's politics, but Pinter adapted it and I think overlaid a lot of the the kind of um, class critique that, you know, you see in The Servant and you see in a lot of other, Losey's other stuff. But um, I really did, uh, I, I just thought Dirk Bogard's performance, again, was just fantastic and such an interesting sketch of this guy who's kind of, a middler, you know, he hasn't really kind of achieved everything he wants in life and, you know, is is all full of 
jealousy and, and mm-hmm. you know, kind of repressed longing and wanting and just how it all pours out in, in this, um, you know, over the course of what happens in the story is fascinating. Without him saying words, you see on Dirk Bogart's face, he wants, he wants this <laughs> <Yes>. prize, Jacqueline <laughs> Sassard. Yeah. And he can't seem to get that moment to get her away from somebody like Michael York or uh, Stanley Baker. And then, of course, he has this wife who's pregnant who doesn't seem to really care that much for him. Miss, Mrs. Harold Pinter, by the way. Yeah. Vivian Merchant? The Merchant, was, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, yeah. And now Harold Pinter's in yeah, he, the film he too, right? Yeah, he makes cameos in, in these movies, yeah. So you can see that sizzle like he wants so bad yeah. that when when his friend ends up getting her, Instead, mm-hmm. he's so outraged that he ends up going to have an aff- a quick affair with uh, Delphine Sayrig, who she keeps popping up in these movies yes. we watch. It's so funny <laughs> that once you once you experience an actor or actress that you see in a movie and they make an impact, then you start to notice them showing up in lots yeah. of films. So it's funny that Delphine Sayrig is really she's showing up all over the landscape. She's the daughter of uh, the dean. At uh, at the college, yes. who was the head scientist in the Damned? Yes. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, one thing that I'm just thinking about here, Bill, as you're talking about this, is just this guy's ability to work with actors. Yes. I mean, there's good casting, and these are good actors, but you know, we were just talking about the the layers here in Dirk Bogard's performance. And I think the director deserves some credit for, you know, he does these long takes. He's letting the actors act. His background in theater, perhaps, really prepared him for working with actors Mm -hmm. in a really interesting way to find all these kind of creepy layers to these characters. (laughs) Well, in in this this movie, they are creepy layers. Yeah. Yeah. But they're creepy layers in the servant. They're yes, creepy. 100%. Yeah. Just because he has a theater background, and it may have been how he could block in the stage. And it's almost, it's weird. These movies, a lot of them, and the internals are on sets, right? Yeah. And I was thinking about that. The way he moves camera, you you never see the other side. You know how people always break the 180 yeah. 80 rule? You never, he does not do that because no. he keeps everything on one side and he really like figures out how am I going to move? And that's why I always find it interesting with these 90 degree turns he makes because yes. he'll show you that side of the stage and he shows you the front, but he doesn't show you the side where the camera Amazon. And of course, he has that theater background. However, I did see a film recently, and I thought a lot about the failures of this movie in comparison to what Losi did. Mm-hmm. It, this is from another theater director. The theater director in question is George C. Wolfe, and he's directed a lot of things on Broadway. He directed the film version of another Netflix movie that's out right now called Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, mm. and that's based on on an August Wilson play yeah. and it's got a lot of great performances in it. I did like the performances very much. Uh, I think that the praise for Chadwick Boseman is absolutely on point. He's amazing in it. The story is just whatever and I don't really like how it resolves itself. It is also very much a play. It's only like 90 minutes and right. it feels playish. However, what the director there seems to do to try to make up for the fact that it's a play is he tries to use, well, I want to make it feel more film-like. So he zooms the camera around all the time without sort of any sense or reason. And he also edits. Sometimes the camera's moving and then he cuts. Like, because they just had the camera moving around without really knowing why am I moving this camera? Yeah, just film it with a steady cam. 
and do a, a bunch of takes and coverage with Steadicam. And then we'll just figure it out later and cut it all together. That's what it felt like. I actually felt like I'm like, I felt like the ghost of Sam Peckinpah was editing this thing because <laughs> there were so many cuts in this movie that it was so noticeable. I mean, cuts shouldn't be noticeable unless there's a style and there was no style for it here. Uh, right. I think it's a big failure in the movie. And when I read the critics going gaga over this movie, I question it a little bit about, well, what is it? Why are they going gaga? Because right. from a filmmaking standpoint, I think the movie is a miserable failure, even though it's like very bright and vibrant. And right. I, you know, I enjoyed myself for the 90 minutes mostly, but mostly because of the acting. Um, but then I, you know, think about how well thought out the camera movements are in these Joseph Losey movies. And the cuts too. He's not finding the scene in editing. Right. That's the thing, Teal, I was going to say also is the fact that, like, I, I'm trying to imagine the screenplay in terms of how it kept kind of jumping back and forth between the accident. Yes. And, you know, the the rest of the film, which, you know, I, I'm just, you know, in terms of how they kind of planned out, because Losey does do that a lot of times with kind of jumping back and forth. He does it a lot. Yeah. yeah and you're right. It's, it's very well planned out. It, it's almost like it's highly storyboarded even though it doesn't feel like that kind of movie. But yeah, like I said, he's not finding the scene in the editing room. I did see the go-between, which also Bill did. And actually, I probably would have skipped it for now, but Bill said he, he thought it was kind of interesting. One of the things you said to me and kind of intrigued me, you said, oh, the score by uh, Michelle Legrand is really good. And I, I love Michelle Legrand. So I was like, oh, I got it. You know, it's very funny because that that's it's because I was looking because it won at Cannes that year. Uh, the go-between. Oh, it did? Okay. It did. It won at con, And so it's very funny when, you know, I, I first went through the Criterion films to look at. I went and, you know, dug out my my uh, trusty Pauline Kale to see yes. what she had to say about <laughs> the go-between. And she has this, like, really horrible thing that she does sometimes where she doesn't review a film, but she'll mention it in passing in the review of another film. And it's kind of like a side swipe that she does. Yes. It's like hit and run <laughs> that she performs on a film. And she does that with the go-between a couple of times, and she'll make reference to it. And she said about the score, and it was something, and I was trying to basically, I, I didn't even unfollow what she was saying. And basically, it was that um, the score was banging around in her head kind of after that she found it because okay. at times I think it's a little too intrusive, but when it really, really works, it's fantastic. You know, it's really strong. And the story again has to do with class kind of forbidden love, I guess that it's another Harold Pinter. It's a little tame, I think by today's standards. Yes. And I feel like at the end it, it resolves itself pretty quickly and doesn't go for what I think today's movie would have really expanded on the conclusion of the film a bit more. And I'm talking about like the big incident, like, it feels like after like a big discovery, they really shortchange what happens right after that. And we just kind of see, and it's the fact that, you know, Michael Redgrave plays, you know, the, the kid is an older man and he really is sort of, his life has kind of been used up though by that experience that, you know, he doesn't have any kids, he hasn't really married, it's, it's sort of scarred him, you get the sense. Yeah, I didn't know anything about the go-between. I've never read the book. I've never read, seen any of the other versions. But I, I was caught up in the fact that there's this little boy who, it's kind of like a Dickens character. He has to live with this uh, very wealthy family for like a small spell right as he's about to turn 13. And he's really used by all the adults in the movie. They know what a kid that age, how, what he goes through, and they kind of, they play upon that. I think Julie Christie's character plays upon the fact that he has a crush on her mm -hmm. to use him to send 
notes to the to the local farmhand played by Alan Bates, who's awesome. He's got these big lamb chop uh, <laughs> beard in the movie. And I actually thought Alan Bates was really good. And he was very I, good. I was caught up in the story and I kind of you kind of knew where it was eventually going to go. But it does do a lot of the same lossy techniques. So I found it very fascinating just sitting down and watching it from that standpoint. No, 100 percent. And, you know, the way that it kind of kept having these flash forwards to the kid when he's grown up, because all of a sudden there'll just be a shot. You're definitely in kind of uh turn of the, you know, it's it's like 1905, 1906, sometime around there is where most of the action takes place. But then all of a sudden there'll be a shot of an airport, like a modern airport. That like, threw oh, wow. me the first time I saw that. You, and you're like, wait, what? What's well, going said, on Well, I said, wait a minute, what year is this? Because I just saw that they didn't look like they had any cars. <laughs> so yeah, it took a while to build to that. And that's what he does. It's just that, you know, the action will be going on. They're riding in horse and carriage. And next thing you know, there's an airport. And you're like, what? And there's no character that you recognize. It's just like there's a shot of an airport. And you're like, okay. <laughs> and the movie the movie definitely has some similarities. It reminds me a little bit of Remains of the Day. And it also reminded yes. me a lot of Atonement. The f- movie that I saw figures in a landscape with I want to see this one. That's it's written by Robert Shaw and it stars Robert Shaw and Malcolm McDowell, which I had never known they had done a film together. <laughs> and basically it's kind of a combination of Lonely or the Brave or like First Blood, the the first Rambo movie where it's like these guys are fugitives, they're being chased by a helicopter. But it's kind of if like Samuel Beckett had written one of these <laughs> because you have You have no idea why they're running. You have no idea, like, what's going on. They're just, like, you learn their names, and they're being chased by a helicopter, and they have their hands tied behind their backs, and they're running. And everything that happens, again, has this sort of, like, absurdist kind of quality, like, out of something that Beckett would write. They're being chased, and, you know, you find out a little bit about their past. They kind of repeat themselves. Things sort of make no sense. So it's a very weird action film because it has all the elements of an action film. They're being chased. They have to, you know, survive. They they have to raid a, a fort. They have to, like, crawl through, like, a field that gets set on fire. You know, they're all there's, <laughs> there's like, an army that's chasing them to a certain point. It has all the elements of like an action movie you've seen a million times before, but you don't know nothing about these characters. You don't know anything about the situation, why they're doing it. And in some ways, it actually kind of makes it more interesting. You're meditating upon the fact that like, okay, I've seen all this shit like a million times before. And so like, does it matter that I don't know anything about these guys? Does it really, you know, it's just all so beautifully shot. A hundred percent. Yeah, it really very much is. It's 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 very self-conscious, you know, artistic in that way. And I I have to say, I I mean, it's not the most satisfying film for all of those reasons, because you don't really kind of understand, you know, what the stakes are for the characters. And they're they're both everything is. Yes, it is allegorical and everything's supposed to be kind of symbolic. But the thing is, that does make it interesting is that it's all shot in southern Spain and the helicopter photography is really kind of beautiful. And them just being chased by this helicopter at different times. It's, It's nice. And but anyway, but an interesting film. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Now, the last film that we're going to talk about, certainly not the last film we made, but this is the film that we were recommended to watch, Mr. Klein, uh, Monsieur Klein. And it was 1976. And it lost the Palme d'Or to Taxi Driver. It lost the Palme d'Or to Taxi Driver, yes. To me, watching this film, I think this is like a, a flat-out masterpiece. That's how I that's, – that was my takeaway from it because I just, I just thought it was like this guy – 
put all his powers together and he made a film that I can't believe is not something that we talk about. Yeah. Today, it uses the backdrop of the Vel de Heve roundup of Jews in France, uh, which was a true event. Yep. And it's a backdrop to really talk about how kind of insane uh, the paranoia of the Nazi occupation in France and how kind of despicable aspects of people's character will come out when they are afraid of being yeah. rounded up. And you have this central performance by this guy, Alain Delon, who is profiting right now from the misery of others yes. by he is an art dealer who will take uh, Jews artwork uh, for a for a song <laughs> When, yes. he, when they need money. To get out of the country, basically. Exactly. And he yeah. feels like he's pretty much, I don't think he really cares about what's happening. You, you know, you talked about the paranoia and everything. There's also the, another aspect to the movie, which is the complete normalcy of everything. And that that's one of the ways in which this horrible aspects of people come forward is that they continue on with their normal lives while this is all going on around them. And I find that fascinating. So I'm always very fascinating at seeing different looks of uh, World War Two and, uh, you know, the occupation and, and, and just from different perspectives, vantage points, different countries, what was happening. And, you know, I mean, we look at our own country, right? What What's happened now in the past yeah. couple of years? Well, we may have lived some normal lives and maybe yeah. in 20 years you look back and people will be asking questions when certain things happened. Well, what was life like? This is obviously a more extreme situation, but. But that question of like, why didn't France fight back? Exactly. Like they, they seem to be too comfortable in the Vichy government with just letting letting the Nazis roll in. And if it, if you weren't Jewish, OK. And that's what was so interesting. Yeah. Right. The question yeah. is, everything's OK if you're not Jewish until you are accused. Exactly. And that's what this sort of weird Kafka-esque exploration that uh, somehow somebody starts to mimic his character there's another mr klein there's another mr klein there's a doppelganger and they even he's mistaken for the other mr klein at times yeah right and he keeps going and not going down a rabbit hole of being accused trying to uncover who the real mr klein is and not getting any of the answers he's looking for it's like it's like the puzzle keeps getting more complicated yes and becomes this obsession Ultimately. Right, which was his undoing by the end of the movie, right? His obsession to continue to, to uncover who the real Mr. Klein is. He goes all the way with that obsession. Yes. Yeah, I thought the end of this movie was fantastic. I don't want to talk about it too much, but it's inevitable, I think, the end. But yeah, I, I, I'm fascinated by this uh, time period and this genre too. But I, And I agree. I think this is a masterpiece. I think it's one of the best World War II movies I've ever seen. I would actually agree. Yeah. I, I honestly was, I thought it was uh, really, really powerful. When this thing was over, my I, my jaw was dropped because again, it just should, this is why I, again, love doing this show is the discoveries of movies that I just flat out did not know existed. Yeah. And they've been around for over 40 years and how this isn't like well-known is shocking to me. It was just restored uh, like a decade ago. And I found some reviews of it from when it was playing at Film Forum okay. for two weeks. And that was the, yeah, it, it, it had been restored. It had kind of gone missing for 30 years. So it's it's 
come back recently and is being appreciated again. But France was not happy with this take. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Let's put it that way. Uh, France spent decades trying to deny their complicity. Yeah. And this calls them out on it pretty, pretty sharply. And what's so interesting also is Alain Delon produced it. Yes. Yeah, it's a gutsy performance, right? He's producing something, and and, and I mean, he's his character. I feel like it's interesting. You're engaged with him, but at the same time, he's a despicable guy. But also, there there's a lot you don't know about him, which I think is it, it's part of the mystery, right? Is like, what is his past exactly? Well, you also wonder: is he really is the Mister Klein? Like, is he really everything he's running away from? You know, right? Because and, the father, the father, kind of says, "Well, they're the the Kleins from Holland." Right. Exactly. We could be, you know, we could be related to the clients from home. Right. He finds out that he could be Jewish. Yeah. And, and his father's like, we've been Catholic since the time of Louis the 14th. That's right. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, it's, it, 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 again, deniability. I mean, there's so many things going on in this movie and how how he can juggle. I'm talking he is in uh, Joseph Losey juggles all of this and and never loses it by the end you know it's, that's what's right. amazing uh, i think this would be a good double feature because uh, it shows you the flip side of what's going on in france at the time with army of shadows oh wow yeah. oh yeah because that is the french underground working uh and then that and that shows you a side of uh the whole experience that you've never seen before. And then this film, uh, again, it's so great. And I just am so thankful to our listener, Andrew Perry, for suggesting these two films, which led us into a discovery of a director who should be much higher regarded today than he is. He really should be, uh, particularly these, you know, these he's got a couple of masterpieces. Yeah, he has some great films and then a couple of, I mean, Mr. Klein and uh, The Servant, to me, are, are, are kind of like masterpiece level. They are, yeah. and they should be being talked about on the same level as, you know, I don't know, other <laughs> other movies that, uh, the fact that Mr. Klein was forgotten is insane to me. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even, I, I mean, I, like, I feel bad not know. I didn't know about this movie. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know about it either. And it's it's a movie that I will highly recommend to people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Got to. And you know what? And the best part is, is that even though this show has now, you know, run its conclusion, I'm going to continue finding and watching movies from this guy. We're not going to get into it, but I, you and I both watched a little bit of his Don Giovanni, which is the. I got to see 15 minutes, and I think I will watch. Try to watch more of that for sure. But it, there's an example of him doing, you know, something that actually is just theater and filming theater. Again, the way he works with space and camera angles and blocking is amazing. All right. Well, anybody else have any last thoughts before we part ways on this episode of Stuff We've Seen? Honestly, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed, uh, you know, kind of going down the rabbit hole a little bit. And uh, thank you for letting me come on to talk about it. Yeah. Great. To, great to hear you, Bill. Thank you. No, it's fun. It's fun, again, to be able to just talk about a particular filmmaker. And again, we started out the program with some not so good news and some films, and <laughs> we, 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 we turned that page. Uh, so, you know, maybe skip some of those uh, new film streaming and go to these films. I got to say, like, you know, watching these movies, I I'd said this before, I feel like I'm in good hands, but it's just such a relief and such a pleasure to be watching a good movie. When, <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, that's actually really true. Yeah. When there's so many just 
mediocre movies that don't stand out, don't do interesting things, don't have a sense of style or, uh, you know, and basically are just a steady cam that's then like figured out in the editing room. And so that's so much of what's being made these days. And so to see this kind of stuff, yeah, it's just, uh, it, it's nurturing. To you, the listener, this is, I think, going to be the start of 2021. And hopefully that's going to be a, a bright and shiny year for everybody. <laughs> so on behalf of uh, me and uh, Teal and, and Bill from Queens, we wish you the best of uh, 2021. And we can't wait to bring you some more episodes. And uh, hopefully we got a really cool, cool episode coming up. Uh, I don't want to tell you anything in case it doesn't happen, but uh, I think it's going to be <laughs> really awesome. All right, uh, people, stuffweseen.com. Uh, we have the Instagram and uh, feedback at stuffweseen.com. Uh, so, you know, reach out to us. If you've got suggestions like our friend Andrew Perry and you want us to talk about a particular director or some films, send that info our way and we will certainly get on the case. Anything else to say, boys? Come on. Thanks for listening. There you go. How about you there? Don't be shy, Billy. <laughs> I don't want to be obnoxious, Jimmy. No. Happy New Year. I don't know. I don't really. I, I, you know what? Normally, I like, I'm not even pretending to say I don't know what you're talking about, but I really don't know. But maybe, maybe I said that. I don't know. Obnoxious. Now you're being obnoxious. <laughs> All right. Goodbye, All right, everybody. Bye, guys. It's going to be a three-part episode. <laughs> no, <laughs> maybe two cut? parts. <laughs> All right. It was about, <laughs> what, about 80 minutes? Well, I got 97 here before we oh. edit, but yeah, it might have to be two episodes, but that's okay. Okay. I believe All you, because right. we're not going to be taping again for a while, so maybe two episodes is good. Well, you could just cut off the rants from the beginning. What? No. And make them their own episode. Oh, the rants, a special rant episode. Maybe. A special, like, yeah, like 30-minute rant episode and then do the lossy stuff as its own. We'll see. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could have ranted about 21 Bridges. Oh, yeah. The Chadwick Boseman movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I watched about 20 minutes of that. He's not going to get an Oscar nom for that? No, I don't think so. <laughs> no. <laughs> That's one of those Steadicam movies. But I'm going to tell you this. This Ma Rainey's Black Bottom... You got to watch it just for to see what I'm talking about. It, yeah. it, it's shocking, though. I again, not going to put anything away because the performances were great, but I just didn't really care for the story that much. I mean, it was a play that I'm like, if I paid fifty dollars to see that play, I'd be like, what? <laughs> <laughs> half an hour and a half of this? No. Anyways, okay. All right, all right bye. <laughs> well, guys, I, was, I, sh I should uh, I should run. I gotta I gotta pop off from my fridge. All right, but, uh, go deal with your fridge, and let's do another episode in a couple months with Bill. Yes, yeah. yes. Well, thank you, really, thank you, guys. All right, and thank uh, you. I gotta tell you the last the last couple of episodes, uh, just on De Palma, were absolutely incredible. Really, oh, really good. enjoyed oh. them. Thank you. Yeah, they, yeah, they no. were fun to do. I like really, really enjoyed. And we will do a fourth because I did see yeah. some more movies afterwards I got to talk about. So, yeah, I mean, uh, honestly, you guys, it was, it was uh, like you guys at your best. So, oh, wow. Good. Okay, great. Because I saw Carlito's Way again. And I got to talk about uh, Pacino yes. and his never ending quest to do, uh, you know, ethnicities that are different from his own. <laughs> <laughs> I know some of these things are so offensive now. Yeah, they were offensive. Yeah. I was like, people were questioning. What is he doing? Why is he yeah, doing? Yeah, people were questioning it then. You're right. Yeah. I mean, I guess they, they could have changed it to Carl's way. <laughs> and then it could have just been hell. <laughs> Anyways. All right. Bye, okay, people. cool. All, right, guys. all the best. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Leave it on there.